I am Ben Doc Askins, the psychedelic science war storyteller, and this is the Anti-Hero's Journey Podcast. Hey everybody, Doc here. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want it to be possible for me to continue to make it, then I'm going to need you to go to my store at antiheroesjourney.com and buy my audiobook and my ebook in one of the many translations available, or go to shop and pick out some of my stuff t shirts and hats and pet bandanas and bikinis and scented candles and all sorts of nonsense, all the things you could ever want and never need, and get 10% off with the code all caps FRIEND10. Go to antiheroesjourney.com. And use the code, all caps, FRIEND10, to get 10% off anything that you could ever want there. I appreciate your support. Thank you. I love you. Goodbye. What's up, Antiheroes Journey fans out there coming in on the podcast here? I got two formats that I like to do. The Q5 stuff that everybody is just loving, where I ask the same five questions to a wide array of people to compare notes. And then I got this other format that I like that we've only done one of so far that I call BLUFF. It's a military acronym. Bottom line, up front. But we're not doing any military stuff with it. We're doing science. It's a science day with Dr. Sarah Bliss Matusik, PhD. We're looking at science papers, particularly psychedelic science stuff, because my byline is the psychedelic science war storyteller, whatever that means. And I bring her on here so that we can give you the bottom line up front on some psychedelic science studies. What's the what's the byline on you, Sarah? Oh, the bottom line up front on me. Yeah, yeah. Who are you? What's why yes. why would I invite you on this thing? You know, like what? I am newly a professor at Gonzaga University in the new public health department. Very exciting. I'm also a research advisor for the medical school at University of Washington uh, on the Spokane campus. I'm a neuroscientist and public health professional. Wicked smart. There we go. Yeah, that's why she comes on here. I can talk science. Yeah. So what are we going to talk science about today? Let's do the, you know, the bottom line up front. What are we doing? All right, we got two articles coming at everyone today so that this is appropriate length for the, everyone's um, podcast enjoyment. The first sure, is this ADHD half an hour or less or whatever, right? Let's do this. This ain't no Huberman Lab podcast, everyone. <laughs> Good Lord. Okay, we've got a nature medicine paper, which uh, to those not familiar, nature is one of like the three career making journals that you would love to get your work into. So usually you trust a nature paper. Nature medicine is where this first one's from. It's about Ibogaine therapy. And then we're going to bring you a plus one article about some of the things to look out for in terms of long-term actually adverse effects of psychedelic use. So we're going to start with the uh, nature medicine paper. Sound good? Love it. All right. Do you want to do the bluff? You want me to? I want you to because you're the real doctor. Sure. This paper's been all over the news. It's pretty exciting, actually. If you read the abstract, you're like, whoa. So the bottom line is really it's an exploratory study in about 30 participants that lays the groundwork for additional studies to test the safety and efficacy of magnesium and ibogaine for the treatment of traumatic brain injury. And specifically here, it's in VETS. So it's for PTSD um, related to traumatic brain injury. Bottom line is that they showed that magnesium and ibogaine together were extremely effective for the reduction of a number of different symptoms, 
um, on a number of different scales uh, for PTSD, depression, anxiety. I mean, up, upwards of 80%. It's a pretty huge effect, actually, immediately and then after a month. So it's a pretty short-term study, small number of people, but really encouraging. And if you look on the abstract and you're a scientist and you get excited about p-values, they're showing p-values of less than 0.001, which means that the treatment has 99.9% to do with the effects that they're seeing, um, basically Ooh. on every scale. So it's a big, big difference. Yeah, that's huge. And the big thing with the magnesium ibogaine combo is we're still at phase two-ish level studies needing to be done around ibogaine because of the level of cardiotoxicity that's been known at high doses. People can be put into a particular kind of ventricular fibrillation called torsades de pointe. And how do we prevent people from dying from taking this particular medicine, screening out people with cardiac history is a big piece of making sure people are safe in these clinical trials. And then they combined it with, yeah, I think it was a gram of magnesium along with the lot. administration of uh, Ibogaine, which is known to stabilize the cardiac myocardium. Uh, you know, we use it for treating a whole bunch of different cardiac abnormalities on an EKG. And then they were given a second gram uh, at a later period of time to maintain the same level of uh, serum magnesium ibogaine concentrations. The big question around whether ibogaine can be used as a psychedelic medicine for opioid use disorder or other addictions or for traumatic brain injury, the question that has to get answered ahead of time is, is it safe to give to people? And it seems in combination with magnesium, that may be the case. Was that your reading of this as well? That, w that was actually, to me, that was the most exciting Part. Like we've known for a long time that Ibogaine is actually extremely effective for a lot of things. It hits a number of these different receptors and we don't need to go into the mechanism, but like it is effective. There are lots of studies on opioid drug use and some other things. But yeah, the safety with cardiac, fatal cardiac arrhythmias is really concerning. I love that it's just a simple, elegant solution to a problem. You know, like you've got a QT wave prolongation and you just chuck some magnesium in there and you mitigate that from happening. And it seems like in this study, there were no adverse, there were really no adverse effects at all. There were a couple of side effects, but no adverse events and certainly no cardiac issues at all. And again, N of 30. And so, you know, once this moves into clinical trial and they've got thousands and thousands of people, I think it'll be really interesting to see what the magnesium's doing there. Yeah. Super important, super interesting study. Super glad people are doing that work and keeping people safe while they're doing it. What else do you think about it? Anything? Well, about the safety issue, I, you know, they did, again, just to, just to kind of be one of those, you know, critical thinkers, they did select for folks that didn't have any pre-existing cardiac issues, that sort of thing. So in folks that will take something like this and run to Mexico and, and want to, you know, try something out, like it is just really important to think about whether it's magnesium or not having a pre-existing cardiac issue it might be something to, uh, to take into consideration. Yeah, definitely a, a different patient population. If you have some kind of history of cardiac arrhythmia ahead of time, you were screened out of this study. So it's not as though you could just get ibogaine somewhere, take, you know, mega dose of magnesium and call it good. That's not a safe thing. Nobody should run out based off of this study or anything else and do anything silly like that. But, you know, in the stepwise progression of demonstrating safety for this medicine, this is a big step forward. Right, right. This is an exploratory study. I think one thing I wanted to point out was it's a prospective observational study. So for those of us in public health, you know, there's prospective and retrospective. Prospective is fun because you can 
really tweak and work with some of the variables, but you're not totally in control of, you know, like a randomized control trial, for example, but you have a lot of control over the situation that you're studying. And so what they did was they found 30 people that were already signed up for and going to do this in Mexico. And then they were able to get some baseline testing done on them, sort of observe the treatment process and then do some post-testing immediately. And then, and then one month after. And I think Ben, you and I were talking about maybe they'll probably, probably done some stuff with them afterwards and we'll see some more results coming, but you know, the, this paper specifically only has a month post-treatment. And I was like, oh, that's really short. So I you were really interested to see see what they have for longer. Yeah, hopefully there'll be six and 12-month follow-ups, but we'll uh, have to wait and see what the, the outcomes are there. And I think I was encouraged to see that, you know, they did a number of, you know, their, their primary outcome was the, you know, the HUDA scale, the World Health Organization Disability Assessment Schedule, which was really significant. But they also, of course, did depression, anxiety, um, and then PTSD screenings as well. And they were all really effective, uh, both immediately and then one one month after. Because the the abstract is so, I, you know, I think positive, encouraging, splashy. It's a really strong effect when all 30 people have significant improvements. And may I add that there aren't any really valid treatments for this that work in our country or anywhere. That's a huge thing to be thinking about. I just like to point out a couple of small caveats as we're moving forward. You know, we've already said that this is uncontrolled, so we don't have a placebo. Then we can go all the way down the rabbit hole into how you actually could maybe even do a placebo when you've got a a psychedelic trial going on. Yeah, it'd have to be like a 36-hour ketamine coma or something comparable where, you know, the phenomenology is similar and the mechanism's ridiculously different. But how do you blind somebody or have a placebo control for what is a 24 to 36-hour psychedelic journey? Like everybody, if you've got, if you can solve for that one, that's a big question being asked by researchers all over the planet right now. It seems... uh, complicated to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. They'll figure it out. They'll figure it out. Um, I'm I'm interested to see how they do it and they will have to soon, not just with this, with like a lot of others that are coming down the pipe. Yeah. I do think a ketamine coma is the best candidate personally, but I don't know what everybody else is uh, thinking out there, right? Like that's a sham control and we know a bit about that, but anyway, yeah. I'd be surprised if they didn't do something like that. Absolutely. It's not going to work to just give somebody Xanax over and over and over again and (laughs) see what happens, which has been the control in some ketamine trials, right? The the comparator arm. Yeah. yeah. I know it happened to me. Sleep. (laughs) Night, night. So yeah, a couple of other things I just want to mention, like the selection bias, you always have to be thinking about who is participating in a study. The fact that they were already signed up to do this is telling. So that's just something to keep in mind. I already mentioned the criteria for the study had to be really controlled as carefully as possible. They, They did exclude some folks that had some other issues going on. The TBI was mild. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's reasonable for a small perspective, you know, pilot safety study, right? But I do wonder about, you know, more significant histories of TBI. There's, you know, anecdotal stuff coming out of the same, some of the same clinics all over the world around people who would be much more highly at risk for chronic traumatic encephalopathy, people like NFL football players. Again, this is case study level reports of having, you know, 
prior and post MRI and having just ridiculous changes where you wouldn't believe that the person's brain was the same brain before and after, I'd love to see some larger studies around some of more significantly brain injured folks out there. Having played a lot of sports and been hit in the head over and over and over again since I was a little kid, I'm super curious about what Ibogaine might do for someone who played football, basketball, baseball, wrestled, ran track, boxed, did MMA, and then joined the military. What was I saying? I don't really remember. Who are who am I? Who are you? What are we doing here? Anyway, Ibogaine. Yeah. Ibogaine. Yeah, you turned out pretty well. The other thing I want to mention, we already talked about the short-term effects. Um, so we want to see longer-term results for sure. The confounding bias I care and don't care about. We talked about this before offline, but they had access to other therapeutic approaches. It wasn't just that they were sat in a room and given a drug. They have, you know, there's a ceremony that goes along with this. And some of it is communal. I can't say enough how important that is to the brain. Anything done in community is important. Anything done with other humans is important and affects us in ways that we don't even understand. So that's super important. And then they did other things. They mentioned some of the other you know, therapeutics that were available while they were there. They, but th- those aren't really, to me, making a big different, re- you know, Reiki, breath work, meditation, sweat lodge. Those sure. are great things, but they're not going to have this significant of effect on the, the issues that we're talking about. But I think that the ceremonial work and the communal aspect to it probably was pretty significant. Strategic navigators reduced my income tax bill by over 50%. These guys save entrepreneurs anywhere from 40 to 60% on their income taxes. Click the link in the description to schedule a call and see what these guys can do for you. If you enjoy paying as much as possible in taxes, then just ignore everything I just said. Two cents on that. Just the way clinical trials have been designed historically is to try to minimize and be minimalistic about placebo. How do we keep everything identical from one side of this trial to the other and then minimize placebo effects? And then there's ways that we could design it that would maximize placebo effects and still see whether or not the differentiator separates significantly. And I think there's probably a way of beginning to design clinical trials that maximizes placebo, but still placebo effect enhancing ceremony and therapy and all of those sorts of things still being non-confounding variables, but that allow the maximum opportunity for people to heal and then still seeing which molecule is different that we introduce in these ways. There's probably a a thousand different ways to slice that pie, but we've leaned historically in the West towards minimizing placebo effect as much as we can. As much as we understand it, I think it's going to make sense more to moderate or to maximize placebo effect going forward, especially in psychedelic trials. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Was that one outlier, though? Do you want to talk about the outliers like a segue to the second study? Mild outlier, I guess we could say. It's not like a maximum. It's pretty significant. I mean, they did have one, you know, outlier on the good end. You know, the baseline, as you probably saw that, the criteria at baseline was that their symptoms were not significant enough to even be included in the results study, which is great. That means they were doing really well. Um, There is one other individual, we're not sharing screen again, but know that there was a significant effect on some of these, actually all four of the major outcomes areas immediately post-treatment, but then one month later just shot right back up to baseline or even worse. And I thought that was really interesting. 
Yeah, there was one that was coming in the door with pretty severe symptomatology right after receiving the medicine, bottomed out to remission levels of symptomatology. And then somebody kind of jumped, had a bad month, went home or whatever happened. You know, we won't, we'll never know the details around all of that, but went back up to not severe, but to moderate levels of symptomatology within 30 days of having this experience. And what's going on there? Yeah, well, severe on at least the Madras scale. So yeah, it's definitely significant. The fact of the matter is with the use of, it's not psychedelics, it's any treatment of any drug of any kind, you know, there's a world in which uh, there are some difficulties post-treatment, whether they're related to the treatment or not, they exist um, and they need to be measured and considered as a part of the world of data and science. So I think this is a nice lead into the second article that we wanted to point out, which is this PLOS One journal article that came out. When was this one? It was October. October of 2023, just a couple months ago. And there were yeah. some there were some headlines around this one when it came out related to that gentleman pilot who tried to take down a plane, I think somewhere. Yeah. Last six to 12 he had, months. He uh, ingested psilocybin on his own and then had gone to work a few days later, I think it was, and wasn't exactly a reliable pilot at that point. Yeah, yeah, I was self self medicating for depression using psilocybin and just had an, a maliverse event at a very bad time, and then tried to take some people out with him. The news articles on it were, you know, sort of flashing what we've all long expected with the research resurgence of the use of psychedelics, which is the fact that it's not a perfect. They're not a perfect solution for everything, certainly, but there are going to be negative experiences and there are going to be safety issues and there are going to be difficulties, sometimes extended. So I thought this was a really great article, actually, just sort of highlighting the fact that no one's no one in this field is afraid to talk about it. The fact is that they exist and it's just super important for both scientists and lay audiences and people just interested in this world to really understand it as much as they can humanly possible. So the article, you know, I think some of the background pieces that I just want to bring out and I'd love, love for you to maybe do the bluff. The reason they were even looking into extended difficulties post-psychedelic use is because some in a lot of uh, review articles or other articles on some of the psychedelic studies, they weren't really doing a great job. Uh, scientists weren't doing a great job of reporting some of the negative effects or side effects or difficulties that some of the participants were experiencing, sometimes immediately, sometimes extended, probably not nefariously, probably just because they did not think that it was important to include because their target was X and this was sort of over here. But this group did a nice job, I think, of bringing that to the center of attention and really clarifying some points about it. So you run with the bluff. More from the clinician perspective than the researcher perspective, Planet Earth is a non-zero risk planet. Anything that you do can result in harm, and you need to be aware of that. There, whatever the headlines say, whatever you know, if it's too good to be true, it probably is, right? And what they had found was that there are these extended difficulties following the ingestion of psychedelic substances. We've all been aware of historically of the the concept of a bad trip, and that that can have persistent negative effects in your life. So don't just you know, like it's the basic stuff that your parents told you, be careful what you put in your mouth. There are consequences for what you eat that some of them are more immediate and some of them take a little while to come back around. But you need to be wise about how you handle some of these sorts of substances, right? And 
what was interesting to me, and we were talking ahead of this uh, episode about, was we've focused very heavily in research around the mechanisms of action, trying to map out what's going on with the 5-HD2A receptor with classic psychedelics or the NMDA receptor with ketamine or what what's happening downstream from that in the circuitry and what's what happens when you upregulate brain-derived neurotrophic factor and all of these sorts of things where the physiology all seems to be very positive regardless of of what's going on for a person in principle, right? Growing new connections, new neurons, making new brain sounds like a good thing. But it seems that if the phenomenology, the experience psychologically and emotionally while those things are taking place is intensely negative, that can be harmful in the way that it has the potential to be antidepressant if you're having a good experience or even if you're having a difficult experience experience and you're well supported rather than flying solo and deciding to do your like circumnavigation of the globe like Magellan or whatever all by yourself. That's not the best way to do any of this sort of stuff. So coming back to the basic biology of Hebb's axiom, the neurons that fire together, wire together, it would seem that there is the potential for the phenomenology of having a bad experience, especially unsupported and all alone, can override any of the good physiology that's taking place in the mechanism of action. And that that also deserves a great deal more study more thoroughly. And that they've documented and detailed in this study a whole bunch of the risk factors and the different substances and the percentages of people who had extended difficulties following the use of psychedelic drugs. That was the bottom line that I took away from it. What are your thoughts? We're very similar. The fact is that you can have enduring difficulties after the use of anything and definitely after the use of psychedelics, even if it's used in a safe setting, even if it's in a clinical trial, even if all these things. However, there are ways, and I think this paper does a nice job of addressing ways to think about mitigating, either mitigating the adverse effects or preventing them from happening, you know, in, in terms of lowering your risk, for example. So the study, I think, was, again, in the last study, I talked about selection. You know, they were only selecting for, in this study, people who had negative experiences. Um, So you've got 608 people, which is a lot of people who had some sort of negative experience, and a third of them had problems for about a year, a sixth of them more than three years post. I think that's, you know, those are outliers to the extreme, but it's just really- You need to be aware that that's an option on the table whenever somebody says, hey man, what are you doing this weekend? You want to eat a face full of mushrooms? Yeah, you might have three years of an awful time. It's happened to someone else before. So think through the decisions that you make here, right? Yeah. I was saying this before too, but the difficulties were more likely to occur- when people who had taken things didn't know what the dosing was or even the drug that they were taking. They were more likely to persist if they experienced a significant difficulty during the actual trip itself. Um, And they were less likely to happen when they were taken in guided sessions, you know, which I I think that's common sense. It's just smart to, you know, consider the, the ways that you're using these sorts of things. Yeah, that was the the one that stuck out and was the most interesting to me was the ayahuasca risk factors in a ceremony versus not in a ceremony, how much more significantly people could be at risk for extended difficulties just taking ayahuasca by themselves or with friends compared with the ceremonial setting. What is it about a ceremonial setting? Like there's a whole bunch of ways that we've treated 
we human beings have treated this medicine as sacred for a very long time. There's dietary changes. There's lifestyle changes. There's communal preparation that's gone on whenever anybody has engaged in ingesting these medicines historically. And to just, uh, you know, pull your car over to the side of the road and do them just doesn't exactly match up with their history of use as beneficial to the human race, right? So having that ceremonial context, there's a whole lot of drilling down into the details around that that aren't just it's safer because you're in a group. There's a lot going on with the lifestyle changes that you're bringing in. I I completely agree with that. It didn't surprise me at all, but I'm really glad that they reported that difference because, and this is my sideline, you know, thought on it is that there's a lot of psychological safety that is inherent in the use of something ceremonially versus on either on your own or even in a group of folks that don't have sort of a confident leader who is, um, you know, experienced in the use of, and you're, you know, the baseline anxiety will be lower just off right off the bat during and probably after, um, you know, there's a lower fear, all these different things. So going into an experience and having like you, we talk all the time about setting is so important, like having, a baseline comfortability in the setting, the set, the setting, all those things is so important because you're, you know, your brain is much more, you know, calm, relaxed, and you're not going to then necessarily, you know, start to sort of cycle into something negative. Right. Everything you can do to optimize the mindset and the setting that's back to basics, you know, psychedelic assisted therapy, 101, the set and the setting are key factors to the degree that you feel completely safe. That's the degree to which you may be able to do the sort of work that you need during a medicine session. That doesn't mean feeling safe because just some guy who said he's a doctor and has a diploma in the back of his van or whatever said that it's good to go and totally safe to he's done this thousands of times before or whatever. Right. Yeah, exactly. Do your homework. Be safe. Be careful what you put in your mouth. PSA. <laughs> Take care of each other. Right? So many PSAs this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Use sunscreen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I, th- I think the bottom line is that there's a lot of therapeutic potential. So exciting here, but as you said, you know, not everything is safe. However, you can maximize the likelihood of you having a good experience and a positive outcome by being smart. Absolutely. You have any final thoughts around any of these studies? Not really. I think I just said it. I'm encouraged by the increase in the more rigorous studies that have come out over the last year or two. It's just kind of increasing almost exponentially. It's really exciting. I'm, I'm like, we're going to be able to do a ton of these uh, just based on the, the volume of, of stuff that's coming out. Oh, yeah. Let's get AI involved, hand it over to the robots, and we'll just retire out and they can let us know what set, setting, dose, dosage, frequency, all of that sort of stuff, right? That's the next step. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Uh, Skynet becomes compassionate before it becomes self-aware, and then we don't have to worry about Terminators. Is that the idea? Yeah. Yeah. That's the move. All right. Well, I appreciate your time, and I'm looking forward to doing more of these bluff episodes as we get the opportunity. Me too. This is fun. Yep. Doc out.